0: Well, good morning. morning. Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Acts chapter 19? It's page 928 in the Blue Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. And yes, by all counts, from what I've heard, the Women's Conference was amazing yesterday. Thank you for Christy and her team for uh, putting that off and all the planning that went into that. And uh, I will freely admit the men would have never been able to pull that off, what you women just did in the prayer. So props to you and love uh, and looking forward to seeing the fruit of that conference uh, through the women of our church so this morning we're wrapping up a series uh, a six-week series that we've simply just entitled vision it's something that we've done every fall now for four years and uh, we are in our sixth and final week of doing a, a kind of a deep dive into our vision statement here at grace church by now hopefully it's somewhat familiar to you Uh, That we exist here to be glorifying to God by making disciples through Christ-centered worship, community, service, and mission. And um, really what I said at the outset of this series is that we just wanted to shed light upon what a healthy and maturing church looks like and how that happens in such a way that doesn't just make much of us. We don't want to make much of Grace Church and look at us and look what we can do, but we want to be a church that when people look at us, they can glorify God, that they can make much of Him and bring glory to Him. And I said this is not just something for, quote-unquote, new people in the church, but that we are a, we are a people that are, tend to forget. I'm not just saying here at Grace Church, but everybody, we tend to forget. And so most often in the Christian life, we don't need new things, We need to be reminded of what we already know. And so that was the purpose and aim behind this series. And so uh, we've kind of said and just kind of set out this roadmap that our primary aim as a church is to glorify God. And our primary task is to make healthy disciples of Jesus Christ. And then our personal roadmap for doing this here at Grace Church is the pathway of Christ-centered worship, Christ-centered community, Christ-centered service, and then what we will look at today to finish it out, Christ-centered mission. And our statement is not just for the letterhead on our mailings. It's not just for our website. It's not just for our bulletins. It is this grid through which we can view our own lives and view one another's lives to gauge how spiritually healthy are we. And so up to this point, we've said here at Grace Church, we expect men and women in our church to do three things. We, we, we say often, we don't just want to fill up your calendar. We're in North Jersey. Everybody has a full calendar. We don't want to just add to your calendar. We want to equip you to live out your already full calendar well. So we said three things. First, Christ-centered worship. We want our people to gather corporately on Sunday morning. That it's not the only aspect of your faith is coming on a Sunday, but it probably is the most important aspect of your faith, the most important aspect of your week. That Scripture has made it clear that the sustaining and growth of God's people happens in the corporate gathering where we sing The Word, pray the Word, preach the Word to one another. And then second, engage in community. And so we kind of have these two places for real community of uh, grace groups and then kind of one-on-one discipling relationships. These kind of opportunities to just say, I want to know people beyond the superficial and I want myself to be known to others as well. And then third, service. To serve the body. To find at least one team, ministry team at Grace Church to pour yourself out for for the glory of God and the good of others, knowing that when we pour ourselves out for others, that actually grows and matures us. And so those three things, worship, community, and service, if you cut one of those out, just something's going to be off in your growth process. You, you might limp along, but it won't be healthy. It'll be like um, trying to get stronger without eating any protein or trying to run a marathon without ever doing any training. Like You might get there, but it won't be as healthy as God has designed you to be. And so this morning we round it out, and we do so with the fourth and final distinctive of a healthy disciple, of a healthy church, Christ-centered mission. And in many ways, the first three that we talk about, worship, community, and service, kind of give you the tools and the resources and the build-up to equip you to go live your life on mission. That all of church doesn't just exist within these walls in this room, but it equips you, it trains you to go out and see every aspect of your life as a life on mission. And so to do so, we're going to look at a story in the book of Acts, and we're going to see what it looks like to be a church that is on mission together. What, what, what can that look like? What can that lead to? And can we cast a vision for ourselves of something that we can be a part of? And so just to start out, the book of Acts is just a tremendous book in your Bible, It is probably the most action-packed narrative because it's a narrative that contains the glimpse into the foundations of this church movement, a, a movement that started in obscurity in the middle of the most vast empire in the world at the time and a movement that went on to upend this Roman Empire and in time spread through the entire world, and it's still happening. So even if you're not a believer with us this morning, we love that you're here, but even you would have to concede that it's pretty crazy that this group of men who were cowards, who were scared, who didn't really understand and understand everything, all of a sudden sparked this movement that 2,000 years later is still ongoing become the most uh, most largest and most significant religion in the world. Like how does that happen? Like whether you believe or don't believe, you just have to concede that's kind of crazy. And in short, the book of Acts is what happens when the person and work of Jesus Christ grabs hold of people's hearts. That it transforms. And it's personal, but it's never private. When you were really transformed by something, it just naturally starts to go out, naturally starts to spread, and in the last 2,000 years, no culture, no government, no social movement, no political landscape has ever been able to stop it. And that's still true today, where this gospel is spreading throughout the world, even in places where there are governments trying to clamp down, and our hope lies in the message that fuels the book of Acts. Acts. But here's what we often do in our modern minds and times is we, we open these books and we read these stories and we go, that's pretty awesome. And then we close it like it was a fiction novel and go about our lives. Like, it'd be great to be part of something like that. And we can often fail to realize that we can be part of something like that, that God has called us to, designed us to, given us an opportunity to see our story in the midst of this story. So one of the key players in the book of Acts, if you're not familiar, is this guy named Paul. And Paul was originally opposed to Jesus Christ. He actually committed his life to imprisoning others who were spreading this message. He hated it. He wanted to clamp down on it. He wanted to see it done. He hated the fact that after Jesus died and they tried to cut off the head, that all of a sudden his followers were starting to spread it around. He was confused by it. He was traveling to different cities to imprison people, to persecute them for their message of Jesus Christ. And then totally out of the blue to Paul. Completely unexpected to him, God shone his grace into Paul's heart. Christ grabbed hold of him, transformed his life by faith. And then Paul is now this man who is set apart and commissioned by Christ to go to different cities, to be the one who's preaching the word, planting churches, developing leaders, and then moving on. And in Acts chapter 19, Paul just arrived to this city, this vast city, ancient city called Ephesus. It was a port city. It was kind of a crossroads of the world. A lot of different cultures would meet here. And he gets to the city, and he finds some followers. In the beginning of Acts 19, they're confused about some things with baptism and Jesus and John the Baptist. And so he clarifies some things with them. And then this this kind of small band of disciples, this small fledgling church, together together embark on a mission in the city of Ephesus, and that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 8. We're going to walk through this story together, see some aspects of Christ-centered mission, and we're going to start with just verses 8 through 10, Acts 19. And he, he being Paul, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. First aspect of mission, Christ-centered mission, is the centrality of the word. The centrality of the word, wherever Paul went in the book of Acts, his mission was defined primarily by the word of the Lord. It was the basis for everything he did. He, he would have this pattern. He would go into a city, he'd go first to the Jewish synagogue in that city and begin to teach, and then he would eventually, over time, sometimes because he was pushed out or sometimes because he chose to, he would extend out to whatever the cultural center of that city was. But no matter where he was, one thing remained constant. The word remained central. And so I think we read this, again, our modern, postmodern, whatever era we're in, our minds, we, we have this uh, mentality of, well, what if he went in and just kind of was under the radar for a while? Wouldn't that be smarter? Like, don't really let anything of your beliefs be known. Just kind of get in there, get some street cred, get some respect for after the people, start a business, and then maybe after a while, slowly, but really slowly, start to share the word a little at the time. Wouldn't that be smarter to do? But that was never Paul's pattern, even in an empire that was diametrically opposed to the word, because he knew then, what is still true now, that nothing of lasting value will happen without the explicitly proclaimed word at the center. This theme is seen all throughout the book of Acts. In chapter 2, when Peter preached for the first time at Pentecost in Jerusalem, verse 41, we read, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Chapter 6, verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Chapter 12, verse 24, But the word of God increased and multiplied. Chapter thirteen, verse thirty-nine, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. I could keep going. There's more. All this is kind of theme all throughout the book of Acts. The word of the Lord went out. The word of the Lord was central. And Paul and his uh, disciples would arrive at a city, and immediately became proclaiming this word because that was the foundation of their faith. You see, at the heart of the church, it's not our personalities. It's not the way we do things, it's not our music. It's the message of the word of the Lord, the gospel, the good news. Now there are some really important subpoints to that that we can learn from Paul. Like number one, he was patient. For three months he was in the synagogue, and then, and then look at the words that Luke uh, gives us to describe it. He was bold and he reasoned and he persuaded. And then when he moved out to the cultural center of Ephesus, he went there daily for two years. This was not not an overnight sensation. It was this patient, persistent sharing of the word, not only to people who didn't believe, but also to those who did. So something I'll tell us over and over again, week after week, is that the gospel is not just for non-Christians. That God uses the same gospel message to sustain and grow his Christians as much as he does to save non-Christians. So it makes my job easy. You know what I have to do every single Sunday in every single passage? Preach the gospel. I'm never going to get beyond that. Any disciple is never going to get beyond their need for the gospel. The word is central to people becoming disciples, and then it remains central to those of us who are trying to grow as disciples. But but here's, again, just something worth pointing out, something that just impacted me in my study. Um, Paul, if you read throughout Acts, he was never intentionally a jerk about sharing the word. Like part of good reasoning and persuading, that includes good listening. And something that oftentimes we can lose the art of. Like, no, I just have a message for you. I don't want to hear anything about you or your life or your story. Just listen to me. And we might listen, not to hear, but listen just so we know how to talk back. That never seemed to be Paul's, way of doing things. He wanted honest dialogue. He wanted to hear their beliefs. Over time, he wanted to understand Ephesus and the context of Ephesus because that would help him then share the word all the more clearly, all the more effectively and powerfully. But bottom line, Paul and the early church were men and women of the word. It was the primary aspect of their mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and if we are going to be a church that makes disciples the word will have to be central so if you're not a christian here let me just say something to you this morning because i'm I'm putting myself in your shoes and you might be hearing this and thinking this idea about church and this idea about mission and going out and spreading and you might ask a question why does the church need a mission It it sounds kind of militaristic, or it's like a dictatorship, like you're trying to get everyone else to believe what you believe. Why can't we just all accept the fact that you can have your beliefs, let others have their beliefs, and just everyone keep it to themselves? Isn't the mindset that we have a mission the very thing that has led to so much violence and so many wars across history? If I were in your shoes, that's what I would be asking. And so I want to quickly expound on what the word of the Lord actually is, because I think it can be this vague thing that we never actually break into, and I think expounding on it will shed light upon why it needs to be central to a church and why it should fuel and spark a mission of the church. Paul elsewhere, he wrote a lot of letters to churches. So churches that would start up, he'd move on to different cities, but then he'd always write letters back to these churches, trying to encourage them, trying to exhort them, trying to raise up and continue to equip leaders. And he would write things like this, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or this, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. To Paul, the word of the Lord was Christ crucified. That was his message. Well, what's so great about that message? Well, the claims of Paul and the Bible is that Jesus is God. Jesus always was God. He's not somebody trying to become a God. He's not somebody trying to to get to a place where he has power. But he's already the king of the universe. He's already the creator of all things. He owns it all. Jesus lacks Nothing. But when he came into the world in the flesh, when he took on human flesh, he emptied himself in order to establish and inaugurate a kingdom that one day he's going to bring to completion on earth. He came once, and we read that, that's Christmas time, and he's coming back again. And this era in between is the era of the church, and those who believe in him will be part of that kingdom forever. All right, we might still be asking, okay, well, I still don't understand why that's good news. I haven't heard the good news part. Well, here it is. The foundation of this kingdom is a God who died for his enemies. Jesus, with all his power, emptied himself, denied his rights by dying on the cross so that the enemies of God, enemies like me, enemies like you, can become sons and daughters of God. By repenting of their sin and placing their faith in him. From an enemy to a child. So this mission that we talk of, it's not contingent on us in the church trying to gain power and us trying to flex our muscles or or, or make something true that's not true. Listen, it's happening. Jesus already came. And he already died on the cross. And he is coming back again. And there will be a final judgment. So the church is proclaiming this word, not to gain power, but out of mercy, out of a desire to see others saved, to proclaim that to become saved is not by you just being a good person. It's not whether or not you curse too much or don't curse too much or you drink too much or don't drink too much. It happens by putting your faith in Jesus Christ because it's his righteousness we receive when we become adopted children of the most high God. That is the good news that is the word of the Lord. That is a message worth basing omission off of. Not that we want power, but the church wants to see men and women saved from a kind of hopelessness that fills this world, saved from a power of darkness, saved from this pursuit of meaninglessness. And across history, As churches began to be planted first in Jerusalem when Jesus died and rose again and ascended back to the Father and then spread out to cities like Ephesus and Corinth and Galatia and then it kept extending out. And that's been the story for the last 2,000 years, rooted in history, to the point where we, Gray's Church, planted in 1947, 71 years ago, within a suburban neighborhood in Ridgewood. You know why it was planted? Because there was men and women who had a burden for this area and wanted the word to be central. And so now it's the job of every local church to understand how to communicate this unchanging ancient word to its current context. So a grace church in Ridgewood can have the same gospel message as a grace church in South Korea. But the way they're going to communicate that message, the context they're going to reach, the understanding of the city around them is going to be impacted by the way they communicate this message to make disciples, to build up disciples. And so the message never changes, but we will differ in the way we communicate the message based upon our culture and our time. And we'll see about Ephesus in a minute. Ephesus was this kind of melting pot of beliefs, this ancient city that had a high focus on magic and spiritual arts. So, Paul had to navigate that with the people in order to get to the heart of the gospel. And he faced intimidation, he faced aggressive responses that would drive him out. And today, in our postmodern era, we're kind of dealing with the exact opposite. It's a very secular age that may have a sense of, vague sense of spirituality, but no real commitments to specific faith or God. And so we need to understand, church, when we carry out this mission, what are our obstacles? We're going to talk about that in our grace groups this week. What are obstacles we face in getting this message out? John Stark put it best in this compiled book of essays that is entitled, Our Secular Age. We're going to have the quote on the screen. He said, the biggest problem facing preachers and churches today is not intolerance or intimidation. The biggest problem is that most people don't seem to care. Our neighbors are simply happy living for goals and pleasures that take no account of God. Our modern society has embraced self-sufficiency with no final goals beyond our own flourishing nor any allegiance to anything outside of this. The charge to all of us in the mission is to keep the word central in the work of making disciples, and that includes building one another up to know the word, to live it out, equipping one another to be able to communicate it, and then having a desire in our hearts to share it with those that God has placed in our lives. Listen, this has been the pattern of the church for 2,000 years, and it's worked out pretty well. And now it's our opportunity to play a part. And so if nothing else, let this passage just increase your confidence in the power of the proclaimed word in your Bible. Let it give you an increased desire to know it, to explain it, to apply it. I will say it again. (laughs) It's the best amen I've heard in a long time. (laughs) That's awesome. All right, let's keep going. The word is central to mission, but it's not the only part of mission. There's more. Let's go. Acts 19, 11 through 17. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know Paul I recognize but who are you And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus both Jews and Greeks and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled A lot going on there but second primary vital aspect to Christ centered mission is the importance Of works. It is vitally necessary for the works of a church and all of its members to accompany and affirm the word we proclaim. Word and works. And so to clarify, we believe here strongly for 71 years at Grace Church that we still believe that salvation is responding to Jesus Christ by faith alone. That nothing we can do to save ourselves, nothing we can do that God's going to say, I'm impressed with you, I want to save you. It's purely by his grace and his work on the cross that we can be saved. But once we believe, the lives we lead will either contradict or affirm that faith we proclaim. Now, I'm not going to dig too far into the talking points of what miracles and gifts are available today of healing or driving out evil. Other, I'll just say this. I think dramatic miracles can be witnessed today, but not in the same measure that the apostles experienced this power in the book of Acts. And I could go down a whole path there, but talk to me after. The bigger point I want to highlight this morning is that Paul was not content just preaching the word and then going home and I'll show up again and preach the word, and then I'll just kind of go home, walking past really physical felt needs in the community around him. He committed to helping out, stepping out in the space of healing the sick, driving out evil, calling out systemic evils and abuses that were in the city. He was preaching the word to as well. And it gives us this picture that the lives of those in the church The lives you lead and that we lead as a church ought to confirm the word that we speak. And that is done by how a church addresses the injustices and physical needs of a world that is around them. Paul does this. You know why? Because Jesus did this. You know, we're going to pick up our series in Mark that we've started in January. We took a break for this vision series. We go back to Mark 11 next Sunday. And we've seen this all throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says, I've come primarily to proclaim the Gospel. I've come to go to the cross, give my life for others. But we saw over and over and over again Him discipling His followers on helping those in need. Healing, feeding, driving out evil, ministering to those in a society that often get marginalized and oppressed. Jesus in the Gospels. Paul and the book of Acts, they were both courageous men, but they were also compassionate. They saw need, and they worked to address it. This is an implication of the gospel, that an evidence that a church truly gets it, an evidence that a believer actually gets it, that they're transformed by the gospel, is whether or not they see themselves as a means through which God uses them to help others and for paul what we just read it leads to honestly one of the most ridiculous stories in the bible not ridiculous untrue like just ridiculously like hilarious and awesome and terrifying all at the same time because i mentioned how ephesus was a highly spiritual city if you go back and read about ephesus it was really kind of a dark place in that sense a lot of spirits a lot of gods a lot of just sexually deviant abuses that occurred And so Paul is in this city preaching the word and he's starting to push back. He's starting to push back on these abuses by the power of the Holy Spirit. And other people see it and they notice. They go, This dude, Paul, and his handkerchief is healing people. And he's by the power in the name of Jesus. And so there's a group of itinerant Jewish exorcists because apparently that was a thing. All right, there was a market for that in Ephesus. And they start looking at him, and they start going, huh, he says Jesus' name, and these spirits just start to flee. They start to tremble. Well, let's, let's try this too. And so um, they get all this energy to go, we want the power of Jesus, but we don't really care about Jesus. We just want his power. And as I'm reading this, I'm just becoming convicted of how this is still a very fatal misstep common today. How true is it that oftentimes people want the power of Jesus without actually wanting Jesus? give me the gifts without the giver. I want the answered prayers and the blessings but not the cost. That's kind of a microcosm of our world. I want the salary but I don't want the work. I want the sex, I don't want the marriage. I want the benefits of faith without actually having faith. Well anyway, these itinerant Jewish exorcists, they go out and they find an evil spirit because of course they did. And they go, okay, uh, by the power of Jesus, leave. And the Spirit's answer is simultaneously hilarious and horrifying. Um, Jesus, we know. I've heard of Paul. Who are you? And then the Spirit just goes on to work these guys out. These seven sons of Sceva just sounds like a terrible heavy metal band strips them naked, sends them on their way, bloody and beaten. But back to the point, any church that proclaims the word effectively will do so by accompanying that word with a compassionate commitment to a city or region that they live in. And so our mission here at Grace Church, that we are going to say unapologetically, we want to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That's essential to our church that's not the only thing we're going to do we are also called to show that love because honestly that's what people will notice they'll notice how we love and based on what they notice then they'll decide to listen whether or not they want to listen to the message that we have so as we distill this down what's this mean for us at gray's church i think it means being intentional about addressing needs and issues that plague our surrounding area and times. So Trish talked a little bit about this morning our seasons of compassion. Each season of the year, we have a different kind of uh, organization that we partner with to help those in need. Right now, it's a Star of Hope and the Box of Love, helping families in Patterson have a meal, giving these boxes to churches and pastors in Patterson that they can then feed their people with. In spring, it was Lighthouse, Lighthouse Pregnancy Center contributing to an organization that pours into mothers and fathers who need support and resources in their pregnancy in order to choose life. I think it also means understanding the implications and speaking out against systemic problems that are around us that we might notice but oftentimes don't, like systemic racism or injustices that still exist. And so, listen, we, we're not going to solve the world's problems here at Grace Church We're probably not even going to solve Ridgewood's problems. But we can be compassionately and courageously stepping into the spaces within our context that the Bible clearly outlines. And so listen to me, this is hard. There are landmines everywhere here. There is an unbelievable amount of wisdom and discernment that needs to do as you navigate these spaces because wherever the Bible and biblical issues and social issues start to interact with political issues, man, it's explosive. It's emotional. And, and so the easy thing to go, let's just retreat from that all. Let's just try and be siloed from it all, but we can't retreat from that and be faithful to our mission. It does mean being careful to navigate these spaces, and all right, don't get uncomfortable, but without being attached to a single political party or a single politician on any level. So let let me just lay our cards on the table, because I never talk about politics for here, and that's intentional. But as we come into a time where we have midseason elections, where I'm getting more and more questions, where do you stand? Where's Grace Church stand? Why aren't you saying anything? Why are you saying something? Let me just lay my cards on the table of how I view church and politics, and how it's going to happen here at Grace Church. And listen, fully recognize I'm still new with this. I don't claim I have this down. I'm not writing any books. But as I just sought counsel, as I prayed about this, here's just some things I can tell you assuredly. One, we're going to pray for our government and our elections. Trish did it this morning, we didn't plan that. That wasn't rigged. Two, we're going to speak up on social issues as we come across them in Scripture and where the Bible is clear. And we're not going to shy away from it just because it can be hard or potentially uncomfortable if our Bible is going to talk about it. Third, I will encourage our people to vote, but listen to me, I will never endorse a party from up here, and I will never endorse a candidate, and I will never give you any guidance on who to vote for. And then lastly, I am never going to give an individual candidate a platform here at Grace Church. I want to be intentional about being a church that's not tied to a single person or a single party and hitch our wagon to that and hope it works out. So there's a quote that ever since I come across it a few years ago by a pastor down in Nashville uh, that I have just latched onto and owned as my own. He says this, If I'm following the whole Jesus, I'm going to be a little too conservative for liberals and a little too liberal for conservatives. That if I'm following the whole Jesus, you're just not going to be easily paint me into a corner or hitch me into one wagon or another. And I know full well, and I experience it on a weekly basis, I know that based on the topic, everyone's going to be just a little bit upset with me. And if everyone's a little upset with me, I feel like I'm doing a good job. So, so he, here's where the church should stand in contrast to our kind of politically divisive, you got to be on this side or this side scenario. Our political system says you either have to be against abortion or against white nationalism, but you can't be both. And I'm going, I'm reading my Bible going, you know what? I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be against both. Or you have to either support the Me Too movement or you have to support honest, credible witness. But you can't support both. And I'm sitting here reading my Bible going, I'm going to follow Jesus and support both. Praise God for the fact that men are getting exposed for a systemic sin that they've been able to commit for decades and centuries without being exposed. And praise God for a justice system that presumes innocence until proven guilty. I'm not saying that Christians should not have convictions or that you should not support a candidate, but as a church, we are never gonna be tied to one. And as a pastor and as a staff, we will never be publicly tied to one, ever. And the reason is because our sole commitment is to the gospel and the social implications of the gospel in compassion. And so hear me a thousand times, I'm grateful for our country. I have a brother who is right now deployed in Afghanistan for the sixth time. But as a Christ-centered community, the church's allegiance to King Jesus was here long before America was, and it's going to last long after America is gone. And that is where we're going to stand of being a, word, a church that's centered on the word and a church that wants to step into spaces to help those in need in our community. Finally, let's finish this passage. Acts 19. A transformation and growth of disciples. These final three verses paint this beautiful pictures of what can happen when a church is committed to Christ-centered mission. Transformation from the inside out. To become a disciple is to respond to the word of the Lord, to put your faith in Jesus Christ, and that changes what you love. And it changes what you love most. It's a transformation primarily of affections. If you think of conversion, coming from death to life, what's the primary change? It's a change of you inside, of what stirs you, of what, what affections you have. When you begin to love something, that is when you start to see changes on the outside. And in Ephesus, those who believed, you notice it said disciples, the ones who were already disciples, who were in a process of growing, it led to them being the ones that bring their books out. They were part of this church, but over patience, pre- Paul is preaching the gospel to his church, to his church, to those outside, but also to those inside. And what comes out of that is this process called sanctification, a process of growth, of growing in the gospel, growing in the implications for our lives, where we repent, we deny old affections. It happens slower than a lot of times we want it to. But over time, we have new affections in Christ that allows us to take actions to walk away from this old life and step into a new one. And it actually changes the way you live. This is not just to give us knowledge. This changes your marriages. It changes your families. It changes your hopes and dreams, and just little by little, A church that is on mission will see transformation in its people and transformation in the region that it's in for good. This is the hope of Christ-centered mission. Men and women growing together in faith, the word centralized, and then going out in ways to change the culture around us for God's glory. And I just want to play a part in that because other people played a part in our lives that way. I want to raise up leaders. I want to plant churches. I want to mold and shape this world with the good news of Jesus Christ. So as we bring this series to a close, here's just the finishing note I want to put on it. Is your view and vision of the church as big as God's vision for the church? Many of us have had to or currently need to deconstruct ways we have viewed church for years, maybe your entire life. It's this thing you just kind of do on Sundays. Get your Jesus in, or most Sundays, or maybe half the Sundays, and consume whatever you can consume, and then just try and go out and live a good life and hope it works out for you in the end. That's church life for so many. And my plea before you over the past six weeks If I can paraphrase C.S. Lewis as saying, you're playing in a mud puddle instead of having a vacation at the sea. The church's vision is to bring glory to God because he is glorious, finding our full and complete joy in him and that we will live lives we've been created for. And so the vision is casted out for us. We place our faith in him and then we have a faith that follows. And we travel this road together as a church. This road of Christ-centered worship, Christ-centered community, Christ-centered service, and Christ-centered mission. And this is the pathway through which God will be glorified and His disciples will be grown in His church. And it's messy and it's hard and it's going to be slower than we want and it requires this daily dying to self, denying ourselves, prioritizing others. But at the blazing center of that messiness is this beautiful community of the church and it's awesome. And this is the space where transformation happens, where death comes to life, where darkness turns to light, where the chains give way to freedom. So let the final verse of this passage be the final words of our series. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's where our hope lives, lives, in the indestructible, ever-progressing, never-ending word of the Lord. Let's pray.